Okay, today is August, what, 2nd? Here we go again. I have y'all's team names on here, Ashley and Rachel. The Jolly Ranchers and the Cardias. I'll let them make up their own name. One time, the, one of their team's name name was the Mints. Mints, M-I-N-T-S. I don't know where that one came from. <laughs> okay, uh, don't forget that this Saturday at 3 o'clock, we're going to have a Lagos tutorial, Lagos seminar. Mary, can you send an email out on that? Okay, just just let it go to everyone. So uh, I know that not all of you have the logoff software, but uh, some of you do, and some of you are interesting in getting it. So three o'clock, three o'clock this Saturday. Four. Okay, I think that's the uh, fourth. Okay, let's prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer. The option of rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your faithfulness for giving us another day. We thank you for the opportunity to be here to feed upon your mighty word. We need it as much as we need the air that we breathe. We pray that you will help us to not allow our minds to wander, that we will be focused so that we can file what we learn into our long-term memory banks. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I think what we're going to do to start with is go over a word that nobody knew. That didn't happen too often. We have an older generation here and they've heard a lot of words. But here is the word, volutanstic, I guess is the way that you pronounce it. Here's how it's used. Uh <laughs> If God does not love the non-elect, then it follows that it is His will that they reject Christ, who is, after all, not sent to save them anyway. It is true, then, verses like John 3.36 are simply incoherent. Condemnation becomes a doctrine grounded in a volutanstic fiat of God that is not based in His character. Now, why somebody uses those words is beyond me. But I had no idea. I thought it had something to do with uh, volunteering, which was wrong. So some people looked it up for me. And let's see, how did I get to the end of this? Here it is. Okay. This is what we find on um, volutanstic. Uh, no one was able to find the word, by the way. Were they? Nobody found it? So, 
Maybe this guy's making up for it. I don't know. <laughs> so, uh, but we do have the word balut uh, in here, and it's Latin. It comes from the Latin voluta, from the feminine of volutas, and it says, here's one that it has three definitions a spiral or scroll shaped form, two, a spiral scroll-shaped ornament forming the chief feature of the Ionic capital. Aren't you glad that this is so clear? <laughs> Number three, any of numerous marine uh, gastropods, mollusks, in the family of volatidae, I don't know, uh, with a thick, short spiral shell, the shell of a balut. Bolut. Not much help there. However, look at this. Notice the word convoluted. Y'all all know what convoluted is, don't you? Maybe you've been called that before. You need to know what it means. Convoluted means having many twists, coils, or whirls, too complex or intricate to understand easily. That's what convoluted means. I always just use a synonym twisted for convoluted. So it looks like whatever the person who was writing the commentary was trying to say is, bas is basically a convoluted fiat. Okay, well, what about what is a fiat? A fiat is an authoritative or arbitrary order or decree. So when we get up to where what he was saying... He said, condemnation becomes a doctrine grounded in a convoluted decree of God that is not based in his character. I can understand that. So, what do you say we go with that? Okay. All right. Uh, I never knew that we were going to deal with that to that degree, or I would just, sometimes I just keep those words out. But sometimes it's good to know those as well. Okay, we ended last time on 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. Now, for those of you that were not here, I'm going to give you the verses that we have gone over. In fact, I'll show you the beginning of this. Unlimited atonement verses. Unlimited atonement is a basic, foundational, fundamental doctrine. I'm not going to read this quote again, but essentially there are people who say that, well, it's an inscrutable thing. Uh, there are verses that in the Bible that support uh, the unlimited view, and there's scriptures in the, in the Bible that support the limited view of Christ's atonement. Some say, well, I don't know whether I could be a Calvinist or I could be an Ar uh, Armenian. Now, those are two, two men that represent two schools of thought with regards to Christ's atonement, with regards really to God's very nature. You all know who Calvin was. He, he essentially leaned towards limited atonement that man doesn't have volition and God has to give you the faith to believe and he only had a certain amount of people that he decided to save 
Uh, Theodore Beza carried this even beyond what he had, but that's the basic understanding of that. Then you have uh, James Arminius, which was another man of that same time frame that believed that uh, he didn't believe in Calvinism. He believed that Christ died for the sins of the whole world, but he believed you could be, that you could lose your salvation. So if someone asks you, are you a Calvinist or are you an Arminian? Your answer is what? Neither. That's right. We are Biblicists. And we can don't want to strut about and be too arrogant about it. But actually the Bible doesn't really substantiate Calvin's view or James Arminius' view. And so my whole point is that there are people who say, well, it's inscrutable, we don't know, only God knows, and don't worry about it. That's their opinion. But I don't agree with that opinion because we're talking about the very character of God. We're talking about whether Jesus Christ went to the cross to pay for the sins of all mankind or if Jesus Christ went to the cross and His atonement is limited to only those that God chooses to save. And I'm not going to be neutral on that. I'm not going to ride the fence on that. As far as I'm concerned, it's an insult to the character and integrity of God. But in order to stand firm on anything, you have to know the doctrines. And we've been going through this. We are in our study called Getting the Gospel Right, how the doctrines of the Reformation, Reformed theology, has distorted the gospel. And we've looked at the acrostic tulip, T-U-L-I-P, and we're right now dealing with L, limited atonement. So here are the verses that, uh, if you weren't here before, speak towards unlimited atonement. First of all, we have Isaiah 53, 6. All of us like sheep have gone astray, each one turned his own way. And the Lord has caused, or God has laid the iniquity of us all upon Him. See, you have all of us like sheep have gone astray. Who is that? Everyone. So the corollary to that is the, to the iniquity of, of us all was... was um, to fall on Christ. You have all, in both cases, unlimited. Then we went to Luke 10, uh, 2.10. But the angel of the Lord said to them, Do not be afraid. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. How many people are lost? All people are lost prior to accepting the gospel. Then we went to John 1, 29. The next day he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the elect. No? The world. Then we have John 3, 14 through 15. Well, actually all the way through 17. Now I know you know John 3, uh, 16. But to get the proper interpretation you have to Put it in the context of John 14 and 15, which says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whosoever believes, in, uh, believes will in him have eternal life. Now we know from, I think it was in uh, Deuteronomy, was it 26? I have it down here somewhere. Uh, no, Numbers, Numbers 21. In Numbers 21, 
this quote from John 3, 14 was taken from Numbers 21. And that's when, of course, the Israelites were being bit, bitten by uh, poisonous snakes because of their um, willfulness against God. And they were dying. They ran to Moses. What can we do? Moses went to God. God said, well, just hammer out uh, out of metal some, a fashion of a serpent and put it on a pole and hold it up. And anyone who looks upon that servant is going to be saved. They're not going to die. So, perfect illustration of our so great salvation. Looking at a, uh, an image of a serpent is not work, but it does take positive volition. It does mean that they had to believe that if they did look, they could be saved, and that is a great illustration of Christ. Now, the point here in this context is it says whoever looks. There wasn't a certain group of people that were allowed to look. Anyone could look, and if they looked, they were saved, which puts the context in John 3.16. And, of course, when you see, for God so loved the world, and when you hear the world, it's a, it's a word used exclusively to be unlimited. Uh, your children may have told you you're the greatest mommy in the world. Or you may have tell, told your children, you're the best little boy or best little girl in the world. Purposely you say that not to confine it in any way. That's the context of John 3.16. And then John 3.17. For God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. Christ didn't come to condemn. He came to save. And who did He come to save? The world. John 4.42. Now, if you're not writing these down, you ought to be. One of these days, you're going to bump into a Calvinist or somebody who's confused, and you're going to say, now, what were all those verses? Where did I put those? It would be good to write them in your Bible somewhere so you have them. You know, you have a lot of pages. I know in this Bible, I have pages. I, don't, I started writing on the very front. When it's, this is the Ryrie Study Bible. I've got things written all over it. I write all over here in the back. You see, these pages aren't... Uh, if you have blank pages in your Bible, why? Why don't you take some of your most important things you want to remember and jot them down here? Look at this. These pages are all over. I got, And that's not counting what's inside the notes. Just a hint. You don't have to do it. But one of these days you're going to think, why didn't I write that in my Bible? You'll know where it is. You won't have to go scouring through all these notes John 4:42 and they were saying to the woman now this is with the the account of Jesus with the woman at the well he had already uh, told her all about her history that no human would know and she was convinced that he was the Messiah she runs into town she tells everybody and the guys from town run down and this is dealing with them and it says in verse 42 and they were saying, that would be the men who the woman talked to. And they were saying to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Uh, we went in a lot more detail in this. We're just, uh, just scanning through here right now. John 12:47. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Romans 5, 6. For while we were still helpless, 
at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Is there any person outside of Jesus Christ that could be qualified as a godly person? Godly at all times? No. We're all classified as the ungodly. Now, of course, the Calvinists would have to say that Christ died for the ungodly of the elect. Romans 5.18 So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men. Now, this is the go-to place to look at why man is condemned. We're not condemned for our own personal sins. We're condemned for Adam's sin. And Adam's sin fell on who? All men. Is there any person ever that was born that was not condemned for Adam's sin? Yeah. Just one. Jesus Christ. And why was that? Why, is, why was he not condemned? Yeah, he had no father, which means he had no sin nature. He had no human father, that is. Now, we understand that that has to refer to all mankind, all without exception. Even so, through one act of righteousness, what is that? Christ on the cross. There resulted in resulted justification of life to all men. Now, what does this mean? Justification to all men. Does that mean that when Christ died on the cross, that... All men were justified, so therefore all men should be saved? No, it doesn't mean that. When it says that means that they're justified, it means that they are justified in the sense that they're not condemned for their sins because Christ paid for their sins. They're justified in the sense that God has made eternal life, salvation, available to them. And if they take advantage of the redemption solution, which is faith in Christ, then they will indeed experience true justification. And we talked about all that. Here's a lot. All these are quotes, by the way, from various sources. Now, down here at the bottom, this is where we ended. In other words, speaking on that verse, just as all men on earth were bought, uh, brought to a state of condemnation through one sin, which was Adam, so salvation was made available to all men by Christ's death on the cross. Though the reception of salvation depends upon exercising faith in Jesus. I added this one today that I didn't have before, right before we get to 2 Corinthians 5.19, which is where we ended. This is, this is so simple. Listen to this. The fact that all sinners are not saved is because Christ uh, the fact that all sinners are not saved is not because Christ did not pay for their sins but because all do not accept that payment. Isn't that put succinctly? Isn't that great? Won't you write it down in your little leaf of your Bible? I mean, I could say this by the way, this was taken from um Dave Hunt in his book, What Love Is This? One more time. The fact that all sinners are not saved is not because Christ did not pay for their sins, but because all do not accept that payment.
Okay, I'll leave that there where you if y'all want to quit, uh, continue to look at it. Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19 is where we ended last time. And here we have, I don't ever quote the namely. We don't have to quote the namely. What we do need to remember is that God was in Christ, and here's the pivotal th- phrase right here. Reconciling the world to himself. What does it mean, reconciling the world to himself? How did Christ reconcile the world to himself? Did he not do that on the cross? All men were reconciled to God on the cross in this sense, and it says, not counting their trespasses against them. What does it mean, their trespasses? Their personal sins are not held against whom? The world. No one sins are held against them. In other words, they're not condemned for their sins. And now, you see how important that is? How could someone be arguing that, no, Christ, this is limited atonement? And that the people that Christ did not die for, they are still accountable to their sins and they're going to be condemned to the lake of fire because of their sins. If, if the English language means anything, how can someone cling to that notion? This, as clearly as it can possibly be, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses. Who are the trespasses? Who are their trespasses? The world's Anybody. We're talking about unbelievers. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. We went over this already to a degree. I like this last phrase that I came up with. Although the provision of atonement is unlimited, yet the application of it is limited. The provision is unlimited. The application is limited. It's only limited to those who have faith in Christ. Okay? Here it is right here. I was just quoting this right here. Although the provision of the atonement is unlimited, yet the application of it is limited. Okay, we're plowing new ground. Y'all ready to get into some more verses now? Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Can you see how close that is to... 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. The grace of God appeared on the cross, which makes salvation available to all men without exception. That's what that's talking about. The grace of God appeared. It appeared in the form of Jesus Christ taking our sins upon Himself. That's when grace appeared. Bringing salvation to the elect? No. Bringing salvation to all. What does it mean, bringing salvation to all? It means it, that it brought salvation in the form of now it's available to all men. He made it possible for all men to be saved. They're not condemned for their sins. But they have to accept the atonement. Those don't, that don't accept the atonement that's where the condemnation comes in. How many people do you know outside of this church and maybe a few close friends 
that know that no one goes to hell for their sins. Why can't we get that word out? Do do you want to really have interesting conversations? Hmm? Next time somebody talks about something that you can kind of segue over into making this comment, well, yeah, that might be so, but you know, Christ, Christ paid for the sins of all mankind. That means nobody goes to hell for their sins. And stand back. Get ready. It's coming. That angers people. Why should that anger? That's the good news, isn't it? But it makes people furious. I can tell. I don't know if anybody's in here ever told anyone that nobody goes to hell for their sins. I've done it on more than one occasion, and every time uh, I thought it was going to wind up in a Donnybrook. I'm talking about fisticuffs. That's how irate people get. Well, you have their attention. Now they're ready to listen. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. How could God desire all men to be saved if He withholds the redemption through Christ from most of them? How could that statement be true? To say this refers to all kinds of men is simply adding to the Scriptures in order to to support a presupposition. No one would, unless they had the presupposition of limited atonement, would take that verse and say that God desires all types of men to be saved. And if that's what the Holy Spirit wanted to convey... Couldn't he have said that? Wouldn't he make that clear? 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. Now, put a star by this one. If there ever was a verse, this is it. 1 Timothy 4, 10. For it is, it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, Listen to this, especially of believers, especially of those who believe. Oh, and especially those who believe, they come in, and those who believe stand here, is it not? Do y'all see the distinction? As far as the distinction, he would stop, especially of Especially for believers. The believers, are, do you see? Apparently, there has been something for all humans. In other words, made a provision of intent. So it will be effective for those who exercise faith in Christ. Get that. This, about four hours ago, I was studying. This is from Dave Well. I mean, well, in theology, but this one is from Dave Hunt. Here's the quote. Surely, especially of believers, most of the the Savior of elect away. It's not for all in general. Then can't be it. The Lord says, "All right, I accepted him." He says, "These especially he brings leaders. They be the elect from Christ is the special, and he is not the Savior for all in that special way." Do you understand that? Then that necessitates. That means that all men cannot be the elect. 
And yet this verse says that Christ is the Savior of all men, especially the, those who believe. So if, if you say that, well, you have to say that those who believe are the elect who are, are saved in a special way because they're elect, but you can't say that that's the same ones that of the whole world. Because there's, there's a distinction there. That he's making a difference. Look at it again. I don't think y'all are getting it. Let me get my... Where's my pointer? Here, you know, we fix our hope on the living God. Now, here's the, the pivotal part right here. Who is the Savior of all men. Okay? But he doesn't stop there and say of all men, but he says especially of believers, or you could say especially of those who believe. This group is not the same as this group. Do you see that? Because these are the ones that believe. These are the ones that don't. And yet it says He is the Savior of all men who are not the elect, but especially of believers who are the elect. What does that do to the doctrine of unlimited atonement? Do you see? Christ died for all men who are not our elect, but He's died in a special way for those believers who are elect. So for someone, see what the... the and I, I'm not, I don't have a vendetta against Calvinism. I'm just trying to get the doctrine straight. This is very important that we understand this. The only way that the Calvinists can make these verses adhere to their theology is to add words in there. For God so loved the world of the elect that whosoever of the elect believe in that type of thing. But it doesn't work here. How can you say that uh, God is the Savior of all men who are not elect, especially of those who are elect? If you try to say, he is the Savior of all men who are the elect, especially of the believers who are the elect. It doesn't make sense. That would nullify the distinction that he's making here. Well, I would do a, I, I would do a tap dance if I thought it would get better, <laughs> get through to you better. I'm, I'm doing the best I can for you to see it. I hope you can see it. Because this is so, you can't make it more clear than this. It's showing that Christ died for all men who are not the elect. They're not believers. But He especially died for the believers who are elect because they're the ones that's going to accept the gospel. Yes, Pete, you want to say something? Yeah, you do. Here you go. I think it's me wanting to help to add add to the word which is dangerous. But is what does the especially in the original? What is its true meaning? It would be more if it be effectively uh, to those who believe. That's fine. That word that would work. Effectively, or you could say effectively, especially. What you're doing is making a distinction. That's my whole point. And that's what the writer is doing. That's okay. what Paul is doing to Timothy. He is making a distinction mm-hmm. between the Savior of all the world, but you could say, uh, he said especially, but you could say, but effectively 
to the to believers. Don't know where it happens. And who are the believers? They're the elect. Is the whole world the elect? No. And we don't claim that they are. But we do claim that Christ died for them. Did y'all put a star by this verse? Do you understand how simple it is? Okay, we'll move on to the next one. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Thank you, Craig. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Doesn't that sound like a loving God, a gracious God, a merciful God, which is how the Bible describes God? How could the Lord not be willing that any should perish if He purposely, purposefully did not die for their sins on the cross? No one would presume this to mean that the Lord is not willing for the elect only to perish unless they impose on this verse a presupposition of limited atonement. You just wouldn't do it unless you are already schooled and tutored into this theology. All right, here's, here's one that is another one. Whoo. Boy, the, I hope you see how powerful these are. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. And He is the propitiation for our sins. Now, propitiation just simply means satisfaction. That means that when Christ died on the cross, He satisfied the justice of God because the justice of God poured out on Jesus Christ the sin, the personal sins of all mankind. And, and God was satisfied with that atonement. That's what it means when it says, and He Himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only. What are we doing here? We're setting up a distinction again, are we not? But also for those of the whole world. This is just the reverse of what we had with regards to the order. Let me see if you can see it. Here he says, who is the Savior of all men. He's talking about the unbelievers first. And then he says, uh, especially or effectively those of believers. He brought in the unbelievers first, the whole world. But now look what he's done in John 2, 2. But he himself is the propitiation, the satisfaction. Christ is the satisfaction for our sins. And not only for ours, that would, who is that talking about? It's talking about believers. It's talking about the elect. It's not only for our sins, and now he makes a distinction, he makes a, a, a difference here, but also for the for those of the whole world. Now, now he's bringing in the unbelievers. He just reversed the order from before. Do you all see that? But he's saying the same thing. There is a distinction there. And to try to remove that distinction by reading this this way, and he himself is a propitiation for our sins, that would be ours of the elect sins, and not ours of the elect only, but also for those of the, uh, of the elect of the whole world. Did you get that? You have to let elect three times in that verse to make it mean what they say it means. A natural reading of this verse without imposing theological presuppositions on it supports unlimited atonement. In fact, a plain reading of this verse would seem to deal with a not, would deal a knockout punch to limited atonement position. It simply would not make sense to interpret this verse as saying he is the atoning sacrifice for our, the elect, sins, and not only for ours of the elect, but also for the sins of the whole world of the elect. 
Well, I, that's what I just said, but now you see it in your writing. I, by the way, th- I, this is a quote. This wasn't me. That this was this in my notes. Then he goes on to say, this is from Walter Martin, Essential Christianity. Some of y'all have heard of Walter Martin. He wrote The Kingdom of the Cults. Wonderful theologian. This is another quote from him. He says, People cannot evade John's usage of whole, which is Greek, holos. We're talking about this word right here. The whole world. Not just the world, the whole world. Walter Martin is making a distinction here. He says, People cannot evade John's usage of whole, holos, H-O-L-O-S, is the Greek word for it. In the same context, the apostle quite cogently points out that the whole, same word, H-O-L-O-S, world lies in wickedness. Get the, get, get the comparison here? Whole world lies in wickedness, or more properly, in the lap of the wicked one. This is 1 John 5:19, a literal translation. If we assume that whole applies only to the chosen or the elect of God then the whole world does not lie in the lap of the wicked one. This, is of, this, of course, all reject. You get that? He says the whole world. This is in 1 John 2.2 by the Apostle John. In the same epistle, he uses that same word, halos, whole, to apply to the the one, the world who lies in wickedness. You see? If you're going to use it whole here, meaning this, it has to be the same over here. We must also ask, how can the Holy Spirit have a ministry to the whole world in showing men their need of Jesus Christ, as in John 14 through 16, if the death of Christ does not make provision of the whole world? Did you get that? I don't want to just read these and y'all just... Just sleep right through them. Not that you are. I, I can tell that you're not just sleeping through them because I still see a lot of washboards out there. But we have to, you know, you have to exercise your brain. Your brain needs exercising just like your body does. If all you're going to do is read cartoons and uh, watch, you know, trivia, this, I'm not trying to, to, to um, offend I'm just saying we have to think through these things. If we have to go over them a dozen times until you say, ah, you know that aha moment, now I get it. I actually had one of those in algebra class one time. (laughs) One time. Okay, here it is again. We must also ask, how can the Holy Spirit have a ministry to the whole world? Now, in John chapter 14, as well in John, John chapter 16... Remember, Christ said, it's necessary for me to go away because if I don't go away, then the Helper will not come. And when the Helper comes, He will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He's going to convict the whole world. And He's saying, how can the Spirit have a ministry to the whole world, showing them their need of Jesus, if the death of Jesus does not make provision for the whole world? How can John say that in John chapter 16, talking about the Holy Spirit came to convict the whole world if Christ didn't die for the whole world. Okay, we'll move on to John 16, 8 through 11. This is it. But I tell you the truth, it's for your own good I am going away unless I go away. 
The Counselor will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of sin. And let's drop down. Uh, he says, um, because I am going to the Father, you cannot see me any longer and regard to judgment because the prince of the world now stands condemned. Now, notice in this passage that the world is clearly distinguished from you. Look at it. That's why I have the you underlined. Do you see? This is another distinction that Christ died not just for the elect. He died for the elect and the world. He says, Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. He's speaking to believers. He's speaking to the elect. But if I go, I will send him to you, believers, elect. And when he comes, he will convict who? The world. The world is not the same as you. The world is a world of unbelievers. And the Holy Spirit came to convict unbelievers so that they will believe the gospel. Here he says, notice in this passage that the world that the world is clearly distinguished from you. What point am I making? I'm making the point that Christ did not come and die just for the elect. He came to die for the whole world without exception, every person. Yet the Holy Spirit is said to bring conviction on the world. And the one and one of the things the Spirit convicts the world of is the sin of not believing in verse 9. Remember? He would convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And what is the next verse? He says, sin, because they what? Do not believe. That's the sin He's convicting them of. Why, why would the Holy Spirit be wasting His time convicting unbelievers of their sin if Christ didn't die for them anyway? Are we to conclude that the world that is convicted of unbelief is the world of the elect? If so, then Satan, the prince of this world, in verse 11 in the same context, must be the prince of the elect. No wonder John Calvin says of this passage, under the term world, now this is John Calvin writing this, under the term world are, I think, included not only those who would be truly converted to Christ, but hypocrites and reprobates. That's John Calvin. Verse 11, he calls uh, the world as, as led by the prince of the world, lies and wickedness. Y'all need a break? Huh? Here? Okay. I don't know why people are so shy and they want to run away from these issues when the very character of God is at stake. And I hope none of you say, well, you know, this is inscrutable. It could be half a dozen this way... Six the other, it really is tempest in a teapot. No, it is not. Fundamental doctrine here of unlimited atonement. Okay, y'all ready? Um, yeah. This is Schaefer 
quoting John Calvin, this quote comes from a Schaefer Theological Seminary Journal, Volume 2, 1996, page 15, and he quotes John Calvin there. That's what that is. Okay. Now, we're going to deal with this world business. We've been using the world a lot. Here's three. Bam, bam, bam. Three verses in a row talking about the world. First John 4:14. 4, we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. John 1:29. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We already went over that one. John 12:47. If anyone, anyone, hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. I, we went over that also, but I want to make a point about the world here. Universal terms such as world should not be restricted in contexts that speak of the atonement. It is true that the world like all and world are sometimes used in Scripture in a restricted sense. Um, and he gives uh, Luke 2, 1 as an example, but there you have oikoinome instead of cosmos. But the context is always the determining factor in how these words should be understood. Theologian Robert Leitner correctly observes, quote, those who always limit the meaning of those terms in contexts that deal with salvation do so on the basis of theological presuppositions, not on the basis of the texts themselves. In other words, the world. There are, there are a few times in the Bible where the world is not all without exception. Very small number of times it's used this way. But he's saying it's not the number of times that it's used even. It is the context in which that, the word world is used. The scholar, now look at this. The scholarly lexicons, y'all know what a lexicon is? It's not what a leprechaun reads. <laughs> lexicons are uh, dictionaries of like Greek and Hebrew. What are they? They're, they're dictionaries, but they call them lexicons. So, the scholarly lexicons, encyclopedias, and dictionaries that know nothing of the meaning of the world of the elect for the biblical word world, which is cosmos. In other words, he's saying these are dictionaries and lexicons and encyclopedias that know nothing about the world ever being used in the context of the world of the elect. Now, I don't know how much reading y'all do. I know that Michael and uh, Vidal will, will recognize some of these uh, dictionaries because we use them when we study back there. Kittle's Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, Vine's Expository Dictionary of the New Testament, of the New Words, Vincent's Word Studies in the New Testament, Thayer's Greek-English Lexicon of the New Testament, Souter's Pocket Lexicon of the New Testament, the New Shaft Herzog Encyclopedia of Religious Knowledge, Hastings Dictionary of the Bible, the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, the New Bible Dictionaries, Baker's Dictionary of Theology, Art and Gingrich's, a Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament. You all recognize several of those, don't you? And it's saying in that list, and there's, you could, you know, this is the chart list, you go to a dictionary to find the meaning of words, and nowhere in any lexicon, 
we're not talking about English. We're talking about in the Greek language or Hebrew language. Never do you see the word cosmos ever defined as meaning anything close to the world of the elect. It's not there. It has to be made up. So according to a study done by Norman Dowdy, no major lexicon of a theological dictionary reduces the term cosmos to a synonym for the elect. Dowdy goes on to say, all of this is disastrous for the advocates of limited atonement. They have ventured to set themselves above the combined scholarship of our lexicons, encyclopedias, and dictionaries. When they have ascribed a further significance to the world word cosmos which will support their theological system so it can't be borne out through the lexicons dictionaries encyclopedias and such when a limited redemptionist you know what a limited redemptionist is it's someone who believes in limited atonement when a limited redemptionist is willing to ignore the standard reference works ignore the plain sense of the text, and ignore the fact that his doctrine is unsupported by a single explicit mention in Scripture, one can be sure that he has come to the Bible with his mind already made up. And this was from the Conservative Theological Journal, Volume 9, uh, from uh, Fort Worth, uh, page 253. By the way, these, these quotes from these journals and so forth, they just don't fall out of the sky into my computer. It takes a lot of research and a lot of reading, and sometimes I'll, I'll spend an hour, two hours maybe, just to glean that paragraph so, because it, it encapsulates what he's been saying in a 12-page article. Just remember that when you get sleepy. Well, I think this would be a good time to, to uh, call it a night. We, we could go on to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. Oh, I'll just do that. Yeah, we're done. It's only got one, one sentence. Put this down. Are you all writing these verses down? Okay. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. And who said that? Paul, of course. Note, there is no distinction made between the elect and non-elect sinners. He just says sinners. And yet the limited atonement bunch has to say Christ came into the world to save the elect sinners, but I don't find any elect there. Okay. Well... Y'all did pretty good. Uh, we're going through some kind of ac academic things, but this is what we have to do sometimes in order to be victorious in this life. I remember back when I was in uh, football, that's what I have to draw from because I spent a lot of time on the gridiron uh, and being taught things, and there were certain things that just we got sick of hearing. We would get down on the line, and you know, you have to freeze, and he, he, he would say, Okay, now don't move your head. Don't look where you're going to block. And then he, he, he would say, he'd blow the whistle and you'd hit the other guy and he'd say, hit, drive, 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 drive. You know, he'd start, <clears throat> when, you, when, you, when you make a block, you just don't hit them and sit there. 
when you hit, you have to drive those legs just like this. And you're pushing him back. You're getting him off the line. And you've got to be quick. You've got to know where to hit. You've got to have your balance right. You've got to have all this right. And we heard this day after day after day after day. I mean, every day after school, practice, we would go there. And he said, and you could go, uh, Bobby Henderson lives down there on the coast. Tim Adams lives up in Dallas area. These are my football buddies. And I can go up to them today, right now, and I could say, hit, drive, 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 and they would just, they would just crack up. Because we're, we're talking about grinding it out. And yet we whip the socks off of everybody that we played, nearly. Because we grind out things like this, and that's what we're doing in the spiritual realm. I mean, it's not all entertaining and thrilling. I mean, I doubt that you're going to write to your long-lost kinfolk and say, Guess what? First Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, you've got to hear this one. You probably won't do that. But you file it away up here. It's in your soul now. Now the Holy Spirit has something to draw out of you when you're standing on line, on the front line, and people are saying, oh, well, yeah, well, Christ just didn't die for everybody's sin. That's the, uh, you can say, oh, well. See, what I'm trying to get you to do, I, I don't know that you'll remember all the verses, but just like I hope that I've trained you to the point to where it's nearly automatic when you get in a confrontation with someone or in a dispute about something biblically, the first thing you're going to start doing is question, 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 question. You're going to bombard them with questions. You're not going to debate them. You're just going to have them with so many questions so they don't have answers to their questions and they're just going to look like Ned and the first reader. They will know themselves. Hey, something's... I don't know what I'm talking about. Maybe he does. And it's the same thing that I'm talking about here. Now, I want you to see the distinctions that I'm pointing out tonight in these verses are very important. The distinction between the world and the elect... And it keeps on saying that Christ is the Savior of the world, especially those who believe. Then it says that uh, Christ is the propitiation, that uh, He is the propitiation for our sins, that would be us believers, and also for the whole world. Distinction. See the distinctions? That means that Christ died for the sins of believers, and the sins of the whole world of unbelievers. And you can't unite it and say, well, they're all the world of elect because the distinction is clear. Yes, Michael? Yeah. Who's he talking about there? He's talking about believers. He's talking about the elect. Another distinction. And when you see those distinctions made there, and then you carry over and see that... Uh, Christ is the Savior of the world, especially of those who believe. That the distinction is still there. Christ died for both parts. Okay? Let's close. Father, we thank You for this time You've given us to meditate and dwell upon these so important distinctions. And we need to have this in our soul to where we can stand firm for the faith. That we will not impugn Your character 
you say that you are full of mercy and grace. You even, the Bible even says that you, God, are love. So we pray that you will help us to hold our ground and that we will be ready when the time comes. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.